Hey everybody, Buck Blue here, and as a recent customer of Jim Ellis Automotive and a longtime friend of the Vice President Stacy Ellis, man, I know Jim Ellis Automotive Group takes pride in being a family-owned and operated business. I saw it firsthand. When Stacy's granddad, Jim Ellis, founded the company back in 71, his goal was to treat every customer like family by offering a car buying experience that was both easy and fully transparent. And it worked. 50 years later, Stacy's dad, Jimmy Ellis, grew the organization to become Georgia's largest family-owned and operated automotive group. And today, third-generation family members like Stacy, along with more than 1,700 dedicated team members, are working hard to uphold the values Jim Ellis Automotive was founded on. And that's why Jim Ellis has been around for over 50 years. Enjoy the advantages of buying your next vehicle from a family-owned and operated dealership. Visit JimEllis.com or stop by any of their 20 dealerships located throughout Metro Atlanta. Jim Ellis Automotive, where you can always expect the best. All right, everybody, welcome to this week's edition of Welcome to Matlana. I would be Matt or Matlana. I didn't give myself the nickname. I earned the nickname. Let's not waste any time. Let's get to this week's edition of Welcome to Matlana. One of the great gentlemen in our business is also a great local story. Ernie Johnson Jr., who you've watched on TNT for a very long time on, I think, the best pregame show in sports inside the NBA, got his start both in Atlanta, actually in Georgia, growing up here as Famous father pitching for the Braves. The stories are endless, and I'm proud to bring on one of my favorite guys, Ernie Johnson Jr. All right, Ernie, so let's start. Uh, let's talk about young Ernie Johnson. Um, not many of us get to grow up in a house where dad pitches in the bigs and then moves into the broadcast booth. So tell me your first memory that you realized dad was a major league pitcher and, and maybe when you were older, the broadcaster. I think, um, and again, again this, is ex- this is really extending my memory uh, abilities because I, I am not a, a young Ernie Johnson anymore. So I don't, you know, I was born in 56. Um, my dad retired um, after the 59 season. And so I don't, I don't really think that I, that I, you know, really understood that what he did. Um, and And sometimes I'm jealous of my older sisters because it would have been cool to watch him pitch and really have an understanding of the guys he's facing and that kind of thing. But uh, it was really after his playing days were over and, you know, he was the Braves PR director in Milwaukee. And then, you know, when they made the move to Atlanta, uh, you know, he, he was really, uh, you know, he jumped into the booth. Um, But I remember playing baseball from, since I could walk, you know, I was always, we'd look at home movies. I was always swinging a bat in the front yard, playing wiffle ball and that kind of thing. And, and, um, it was, it was really when we were in Atlanta where I really got true appreciation for what he did for a living and, and how important baseball was to him. And so, yeah, you know, I was tagging along all the time, going to the ballpark, going to, you know, I was standing behind the cage during BP. I'm watching Henry Aaron. I'm watching, you know, all these guys and, you know, to have Hank Aaron ask you how your little league team is doing, you know, was pretty heady stuff, you know, and that, and, and so I realized really Matt that, that this is, you know, I'm, I've got this wonderful childhood, you know, and, and I love baseball and my dad does that for a living. And, and, um, you know, that was kind of the path that I wanted to go down. 
What kind of uh, Little League baseball player were you? Ooh, okay. Um, I had no power. I never had power. And so I never hit a home run in Little League, which kind of frosted me <laughs> because I had buddies. I had buddies on the team who were hitting dingers and that kind of thing, and I never did. But I was always a good fielder. And I think, um, you know, part of that is when I'm growing up and, and I, have, I have memories all the time of my dad just throwing me pop-ups, you know, and it's for hours, you know. And, and then, you know, he'd throw me batting practice. We'd go to a field. He'd, he'd hit me grounders. I'd hit. And, and I just couldn't get enough of that. Um, but I was a pretty good Little League player. You know, I was making all-star teams and that kind of thing. And I was a pitcher and an infielder. And, and um, um, went to, you know, Marist and was able to play play baseball at Marist and and then took that to uh, to the University of Georgia for one glorious season as I as I tell everybody I, I walked on as a freshman at Georgia and was told to walk off as a sophomore <laughs> uh, and so, so so that was the the end of my baseball career but you know what's funny uh, you know you you know you talk about growing up and playing and I just now got back from lunch I had taken uh, Michael and Ashley, uh, one of my sons and one of my daughters, out to lunch. And there sat a guy I played with at Georgia in 1975, Mickey Register, who was a great pitcher on that team as we won the division. And we just sat there and told stories about that year. And I'd seen Mickey a couple of times through the years, but I haven't seen him in a while. And and it just made me realize how lucky I was just to have that one year at Georgia, because I learned a lot and I grew up a lot. You know, you're a freshman and you're and you're you know walking around Athens and and it really gave you a home uh, um, with all these guys who had a lot more worldly experience and were great baseball players. And man, I'll I will you know I joke about that one year and you know going two for eighteen at the plate or whatever I did something like that. And uh, but man, I would not trade those memories for anything. Speaking of memories, what are your memories of Atlanta when you moved here and, and growing up in a city at that time that was still really small? Oh, I mean, that's a great point because you know here I am. I'm up in Milwaukee. I'm eight or nine years old. Uh, I was eight, about to be nine, when we moved. I had no idea what what Atlanta was. You know, I, Milwaukee had been my life. And I, you know, you could have been, you could have told me I was going to Iceland, you know, for for as much as I knew where Atlanta was. And yeah, back then, you know, like the Hyatt Regency, I think was built by was built back then. But there were the the skyline hardly registered as a skyline back then. There were no, it didn't look anything like it does now. And we grew up in Sandy Springs, and back then. The only thing in, in, say, Roswell, Georgia, the only thing out there was the uh, the vet where we would take our dogs when we go on vacation and leave them there while we were out of town. And there was nothing else out there. I mean, uh, and now you see how the whole place has grown up and, and this sprawl. And and so, yeah, it was uh, it was a totally different feel. But it was also, more, you know, one of these things growing up in Sandy Springs where you make friends, and then, you know, during your summers, you would just go to an elementary school and play pickup baseball all day long. You know, it was such a different time, you know. It was like you couldn't wait to get up in the morning to go out and play. And and so 
you know, now as as a 63 year old, and I look around and I see the way my kids grew up and way my grandkids and the videos and all that stuff, it's like, boy, it was a different world. But it was, but it was a, it was a great place, and you know, we acclimated right away to uh, to living down here. The funniest thing, I think, you know, one of the things was just. Southern drawl, which I'd never heard in my life, and this is a and this is a true story. My mom uh, had driven through an area where they had just paved the road, and a bunch of tar splashed up on the side of her car, and she went into a to a, a service station, and this is when they used to come out and pump your gas for you. And she asked the guy, she said, "What can you help me get the tar off of this car?" And he said, which tar is it? <laughs> and we were like, you know, the tar that splashed up on, I don't know, which tar, front tar, <laughs> rear tar, which, it was unbelievable. So, yeah, there were experiences like that all along, you know, this transition from uh, from frigid Milwaukee down here to Atlanta. It's a new year, which means it's time to try something new. And I'm talking to you folks who have not yet tried the Daily Draft in downtown Woodstock. I hope you'll go see my friend Sean Daly. That's, get it, the Daily Draft. This is the ultimate sports bar experience. So as the football playoffs near, and then baseball's around the corner, knock on wood, and all the fun springtime things that will happen in Atlanta, you're going to want to enjoy it at the Daily Draft. It's downtown Woodstock on Main Street. What you're going to find, a craft beer bar, self-serve taps, uh, big screens all around you to catch every view of the big game. And when I say a big screen, they have a movie-sized screen with a front-row seat right in front of it that you can grab if you get there at the right time to enjoy all your favorite games. A chef-inspired menu with soup, salad, sandwiches, flatbreads, uh, you name it, they have everything to find everybody exactly what they want when you're going with the family, a boys' night, or a date night. The DailyDraft.net is where you can find all the information about some of the nights like Trivia Night, Kids Eat Free Night, and more. TheDailyDraft.net. Go find them downtown Woodstock on Main Street. Tell them Matt sent you. You'll love The Daily Draft. Hey, are you tired of shopping your car and home insurance every single year? Well, somebody's got to do it. But that somebody doesn't have to be you. At the Rose Group, we can get you up to 10 insurance quotes in less than 10 minutes. Visit us online today at roads-group.com. So you got to watch your dad, as you said, make the transition to uh, to the broadcast booth. So I bet that made it a little bit easier to see dad and what he wants to do. Is that when you, mid-teen years, maybe even earlier, realize that's kind of the, uh, the path you want to follow? Not really. I mean, that really wasn't the plan for me. I, I always enjoyed hanging out. And, you know, I, I, I recall being in the booth. You know, when Hank Aaron hit his 600th home run and when he hit his 700th home run and my dad was at the mic, you know, and I and I was standing, you know, sitting back there watching him do this. And and um, and then, you know, just being able again to to tag along and watch him do his pregame radio show and interview different players. And, and at the same time, meet some of these legends who my dad had pitched against. You know, and, and and hearing Stan Musial tell me, boy, your dad and that palm ball he threw, man, that's one of the best change-ups. That thing never got to the plate. And I'm sitting here, sitting here thinking, this is Stan Musial talking about my dad and, and, and what it was like to face him, you know, and, and then you know, all the stories that my dad would tell me about facing all these great hitters and, and telling me that he got in the Hall of Fame. Uh, and I said, I said, Dad, I didn't know you were in the Hall of Fame. Yeah, I said, um, 
you know, I give I, I gave up Rocky Colavito's fourth home run in a game. You know, and it's there's some place in Cooperstown where that's remembered. And so, uh, yeah, it was it was just really rich, but it was but it still wasn't something that I said, boy, this is what I want to do. At, at that point, you know, as a teenager, I still wanted to be a big league ball player, and and then I, I had told myself if I if, if that doesn't happen, then I want to be an English teacher and a baseball coach, and and that was kind of you know, I was I, I had kind of looked at my high school coach at Marist, Jerry Queen, um, who was a tremendous influence and a guy that I just you know, loved to play for. And he was a teacher and a baseball coach. And I said, you know what, I could see myself doing that. And um, and then um, really my dad never pressured me or pushed me in, in the direction of, you know, being a sportscaster. Skip Carius, really, <laughs> the guy was like, Bernie, you got a good voice, man. You ought to try this. I think you'd really like it. And I, well, I skipped maybe, but I, you know, I, I kind of have a, a plan of what I want to do if baseball doesn't work out. Um, but it just kind of happened that once I got cut uh, at Georgia, and and I'm sitting here thinking, okay, I'm an English major, and I just kind of toyed with whether well, there's, there's a campus radio station up here. Maybe I will try that, and that's what I. You know, I went to WUOG, and Alfred Rothstein was the sports director, and I said, do you have a spot? And he said, yeah, I mean, we take anybody who wants to do it. We try to give them some experience, and that's and that's where it started, at WUOG, the campus radio station at, uh, at Georgia. Was it an instant love, or was it a kind of a slow build till you found out this is the future for you? Yeah, it was kind of slow because the first thing I was assigned to do was uh, a, a little series called Hockey Corner, and and again at this point we're talking 1976, 77 around there, and the Flames were still in town, and I loved going to the hockey games like when I was in high school and that kind of thing, and and so I knew hockey a little bit, and so I told Alfred, oh I'll do the hockey thing, I'll 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 explain to people what it's about in case they're going to go down and watch a hockey game for the first time, and it was. So brutal, Matt. It was the, <laughs> it was so absolutely brutal, and and the funny thing is, um, I mean, it, it was incredibly dry, incredibly monotone. I was you know reading the script that I had written that was just so lacking in anything dynamic. And I can remember the first line: it was, "The game is played on a rink. It is so and so feet long and this and this wide." They played with a hardened rubber disc called a puck. And it was, I mean, how anybody listened to it, I think they just may have listened to it just to see how bad it was. And, um, but that was my first assignment. And then, then it was like, okay, you're going to go to Georgia football practice and uh, interview Vince Dooley and a couple of guys. And then, and now you're going to go to this game and cover it and you're going to do post game. And then you start getting into this, man, I love sports and I'm getting into the games for free and I'm getting this access that other people don't have. And, and this is really, this is really fun. I mean, I'm sure you've got similar stories too about, you know, the first time it kind of bites you and you say, this is what I want to do. It's not like work at all. And, um, and that's, and that's kind of where it, uh, where it all began. And, And luckily after that, I mean, I knew so, I knew so little about the business you know that there was a, a real station or a, you know a commercial station in town in Athens called WAGQ Q105, 
and um, they were looking for a news and sports director, and so I applied for that one summer so I could have that to do while I was in school. And I went in and applied, and, and the station manager, Jerry Gerson, says to me, okay, let me listen, let me hear your tape. I said, what tape? <laughs> he said, did you, you've come to this interview without a tape? I said, yeah, um, but I, I mean, I could probably rustle up some stuff that I did at the campus radio station. Anyway, he kind of said, well, let's just do a couple of practice things. And he said, okay, you're hired. And so while I was in school and had switched to the, to the journalism school, um, I was able to go to classes and then also get up at the crack of dawn and I'd do the drive time news and sports in the morning and in the afternoon, and then maybe cover a city council meeting that night and that kind of thing. And so that's where, you know, after that kind of, you know, kind of rough beginning at the campus radio station is where I, you know, I, I really got a good feel for, you know, the work that went into it and how you tell a story and how you cover a story and that kind of thing. And, and I was really getting the kind of experience that my classmates were just learning about in the classroom. And I was, you know, and I was getting firsthand experience doing it. It's a new year, which means it's time to try something new. And I'm talking to you folks who have not yet tried the Daily Draft in downtown Woodstock. I hope you'll go see my friend Sean Daly. That's, get it, the Daily Draft. This is the ultimate sports bar experience. So as the football playoffs near, and then baseball's around the corner, knock on wood and all the fun springtime things that will happen in atlanta you're going to want to enjoy it at the daily draft it's downtown woodstock on main street what you're going to find a craft beer bar self-serve taps a big screens all around you to catch every view of the big game and when i say a big screen they have a movie size screen with a front row seat right in front of it that you can grab if you get there at the right time to enjoy all your favorite games a chef inspired menu with soup salad sandwiches flatbreads, uh, you name it, they have everything to find everybody exactly what they want when you're going with the family, a boys' night, or a date night. The DailyDraft.net is where you can find all the information about some of the nights like Trivia Night, Kids Eat Free Night, and more. TheDailyDraft.net. Go find them downtown Woodstock on Main Street. Tell them Matt sent you. You'll love The Daily Draft. I always, uh, I always find it interesting, Ernie, when somebody asks me about first jobs, and I'm like, you never think about money because you're young and you just want to get your oh, foot in the door, yeah. right? You just you don't care what it is. So, no doubt for you, from either that radio experience or your first TV job, like like yeah. you said, you'll work morning, noon, night. You'll do what you have to do. I made, I think I made seven thousand dollars, like all put together through the first year. Do you remember what the first year as a real job doing this full time was for you? In TV in Macon, yeah, Macon, Georgia, and and just a backstory: uh, the first job in TV after I graduated, the first TV job I applied for was in Albany, Georgia, and uh, at Channel Ten, and and I was so over the moon because, sure, I was going to drive from Athens to Albany, <laughs> um, which is which is a pretty hefty drive. Um, but they were going to put up, put me up in a hotel. They were paying for the hotel. I mean, I thought, <laughs> okay, this doesn't get any better than this. I'm going someplace and somebody else is paying for the hotel. This is awesome. And and then I, um, the audition was scheduled for right after they went off the air with their six o'clock news on Saturday night. And I got down there in the studio and I'm waiting to do my thing. And the, the studio clears and I sit down and this. This audition made Hockey Corner look like, you know, uh, an award-winning show because I was so nervous 
and I'm talking about a million miles an hour, sweating profusely. Uh, this, the makeup that I had applied myself was dripping onto the collar of my shirt. It was just horrible. And, and after I finished it, I told the, the, the news director, I said, boy, I would really love to be able to try that again. I was, you know, I was pretty nervous. He said, no, no, we've seen enough. We've seen enough. Uh, we'll get back to you. And I never heard from Albany, Georgia again. <laughs> never never a letter, never a phone call, never anything like that. And then luckily, the folks in Macon had a news opening for a news anchor, and I applied there. And the audition went uh, somewhat better than it did in Albany. And so I found myself as the, uh, as the news anchor at uh, Channel 13, starting in the 11 o'clock news and then eventually, when the, the six o'clock anchor left, I stepped into that role. And um, but again, it was, you know, at that point, you'll do whatever. You know, it wasn't a sports job; it was a news job. But I'll take it. You know, there, somebody's going to put me on TV. And this is 1979. I'm 23 years old. I look like I'm 14. And you know, and every time you make a mistake, you you figure that somebody at home saying, "Hey, Martha, come in and come into the." into the den and watch this kid trying to read the news here on channel 13. And, uh, but that's how you start and, and you make all your mistakes and, and you try to, you know, you deal with the wrong video showing up, uh, you know, when you're talking about one story and the video of another one shows up and you try not to freeze. And, uh, you know, it was, it was a, it was a great place to learn. That's for sure. I was there for a year and a half and well, I made, the question was how much did I make? Ten thousand dollars to anchor the news and make it, <laughs> but you didn't care. Oh no! Didn't I matter. Mean, yeah. No, the only the only time it mattered to me, the only time what I was making mattered to me in making was when I had a you know a, a car bill due and a power bill due at the same time, and I'm saying, okay, which which one comes after you quicker if you don't pay it on time? And so then you, there was that decision making going on, and uh, yeah, it was. It was a, it was a, just a wonderful a wonderful time, and it was also and I hate to get really long winded on these answers, but you know you learn all this stuff in journalism school about hey if you're a news anchor you know you have these you know these standards you know you're not going to do any commercials or anything like that you you know you you may have to be covering a story that involves you know a company and you you don't want to be tied to them in any way. First thing I had to do my first you know, when I showed up at work at WMAZ was I had to do commercials. And I told the news director, I said, hey, this is not what a news anchor does. A news anchor doesn't go out and do commercials. And we don't have the budget to pay somebody to do both. So you go out to Barney A. Smith, Lincoln, Mercury, and you do your spot this morning, and then you can come back and work on news. And so it wasn't unusual for me to be anchoring the news at 6 o'clock. We go to commercial break, and I'm sitting here in a flannel shirt saying the window and door shop at W Supply has everything you need this fall. <laughs> you know, that was and, – and, and banging on the hood of a car at Barney A. Smith, Lincoln, Mercury, and saying, we got good used cars. It was – it was uh, – oh, it was a rich time. That's for sure. That's for sure. Uh, and then the uh, the journey, which every 22, 24-year-old wants to get to the big city, and for you, it led back to Atlanta. And, Ernie, I'll tell you, my first memory of Ernie Johnson was early to mid-'80s, seeing you on Channel 2 doing, I think, weekends, if I had it right, anchoring the sports. Yeah. So tell me the journey to Atlanta and finding a place at one of the great heritage stations in America. 
Oh, for sure. And and uh, there had to be a step in between because I wasn't going to go from Macon to Atlanta. That just didn't happen. And again, it's a different it's a different world now. You know, it's the opportunities. You know, you basically had to follow, you know, this system that everybody has to follow. You, you start in Macon and then you look for a bigger market. So I went from market like number 135 in Macon to market 35 in Spartanburg. And I stayed there for a year. And again, it was a news job. And then, um, you know, after a year, then I was, you know, I, I applied at Channel 5 in Atlanta. And they weren't hiring at that time. I had a had an interview down there. And by that time, I knew that you had to have a tape together, you know, to show people when you're trying to get another job. And so then uh, WSB was also looking for a general assignment reporter. And, um you know, I went down to White Columns, and this was, you know, this is 1982, early 1982. And lo and behold, uh, two weeks later, I get a call in my apartment in Spartanburg from Dick Mallory, the news director, who says, who says, um, so we've made a decision. When can you start? And I, you know, at that point, you, you just, you are so overwhelmed uh, at that point, I mean, I was dancing around that apartment, and I was like, I, "This is this is what I want to do," and I'm and I'm moving up now to a you know top ten, top fifteen market in the country, and and again, it was a news job. So I was you know I was on the night beat, Ernie Johnson, Channel Two Action News, you know, <laughs> for the first uh, you know year and a half, and then things just happen sometimes matt and there's you know there's no explaining it people talk about luck or timing or divine intervention or whatever it is a new news director takes over at channel two on a night where i'm filling in for one of our sports guys who's on vacation and i'm doing a live shot before a braves game and the next day i come into work and the new news director secretary comes and says um raven matthews who's the news director he wants to see you in his office and i'm thinking okay get a box and start packing up your stuff because because here's this guy's going to clean house. And he and he asked me, he says, have you ever thought about doing sports? And I said, well, I've always loved it. I used to do it on the radio, but I thought I was kind of, you know, now down the news path. He said, no, I'd like to make you the new weekend sports anchor. And that's where that happened. And so that's, you know, from, I guess it was 1984 and through, uh, through 89, I was, I was working the weekends and, um, and it was, uh, you know, that's a, that's a career changer. That's a life changer. That's, you know, it's, it's, uh, you know, finally getting to do deep down inside what I really wanted, and that was sports. And uh, and what a great place to do it, where you had, you know, the Braves and the Falcons and the Hawks and Georgia and Georgia Tech, and you know, there was never a shortage of, uh, of great stuff to cover and great people to meet. It wasn't exactly the salad days, though, right? I mean, you're 84 to 89, so that's Braves kind of ready to rebuild. That's Falcons who could never seem to get the right footing. Hawks were good. Uh, Georgia was always mm-hmm. relevant, and Georgia Tech was probably a year or two away from what we saw Bobby Ross do. So what was that whole era like for you covering the teams? You know what? You know what's, uh, one thing that it did, um, it just kind of it, it really takes your allegiance away. Um, because, yeah, you're a Georgia guy, and – and but you're covering Georgia Tech, so you you know, and you're dealing with Bobby Crimmins, and and you're dealing with Bobby Ross, and you're you know, and you're dealing with Vince Dooley up in Athens, and Hugh Durham, and 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 it's you know, you can't show 
you can't show any favoritism. I can't tell you how many times I got phone calls after a, a weekend sports guest from somebody who'd say, I'm a Georgia Tech fan, and you gave the Georgia Tech highlights 48 seconds tonight, and you gave Georgia a minute and a half. I know that's because you went to Georgia. And, and you would get that all the time. And so you're trying to fight that. And 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 part of and part of what happens too is that you grow so fond of guys like Bobby Crimmins, um, that you respect what they're doing, and you and you want to give, obviously, when in that position, equal time to everybody and, and equal attention to everybody, and and it really does kind of just water down any allegiance that you have to to any teams. So tell me about that next step, which became Turner Sports. What was the first opportunity there? How did that come about? It was uh, it was not the prettiest of situations, to be totally honest with you, um, um, uh, because Don McGuire had called me, Don McGuire, and uh, and he he said, you know, here's the thing, you know, Turner located in Atlanta, and they're able to watch all the local sportscasters, you know, all the time, and so for him to call me and say, hey, we'd really like to have you over here in our place. And um, and so when I told the folks at Channel 2, then it got a little messy because they didn't really want to let me go. And But I kind of I, – I could see where this was heading. Chuck Dowdle had come in uh, at that point to be the number one guy uh, as I was doing weekends. And Chuck was going to be there forever. And and I saw that. And I said, I don't want to be the weekend guy for my entire life. But so for, for, for Turner to call was like, oh, wow, here's, a, here's an out without having to, you know, pick up roots and move anywhere. And so I really wanted that. And then uh, it, it got into a, you know, here's what their offer is and here's what their offer is. And, and, and I said, I've, I've got to, I, I want to jump at this. And then WSB held me to a, six-month no-compete clause to keep me off the air for six months once I went to Turner, even though I really wasn't competing. But it was, you know, it, it just got kind of messy. And, and But it all, you know, it all turned out fine. But the thing that was that they really wanted to do at the outset, they said they had kind of a wide world of sports show on TBS called U.S. Olympic Gold. And they said, we want you to be the host of that show. And then when the Goodwill Games come up in 1990 in Seattle, you know, you'll, you're kind of going to be the face of our amateur sports coverage, and you'll jump in and, and be the host of the Goodwill Games. And I said, oh, that'll be great. You know, that's, that's, that sounds good. And then there was a shakeup in the hierarchy of the Goodwill Games, and suddenly Ernie Johnson was not going to be the host of the Goodwill Games. Larry King is going to be. <laughs> And and Nick Charles is going to be one of the one of the uh, co-hosts, and Hannah Storm is going to be one of the co-hosts, and and uh, so Ernie, you're going to be doing a number of these other sports, and it, it was that was after the uh, the Bo Jackson ad campaign had run, where Bo knows you know Bo knows all these sports. Well, I was doing all the sports Bo doesn't know at the Goodwill Games. I was doing I was doing modern pentathlon judo, rowing, you name it. And, and so, um, again, I, you know, look, I, 
I was a Turner guy. Whatever, whatever you want me to do, I'll do. And then the NBA came along, and that's when everything really changed. That's when, you know, when TNT, you know, launched and and they had the NBA. And um, that first year that I was there, I was still sitting out that that no compete. And then uh, Craig Sager was the guy who was in the chair hosting uh, on TNT. So he did that for one year. Then he went to the sidelines, and in the ninety ninety one season. That's when I became the, uh, the studio host of, uh, of the NBA on TNT, and I've you know been in that chair ever since. Who was next to you for the first uh, experience doing the NBA coverage on TNT? Nobody. <laughs> uh, I, I was I was doing those uh, solo for the most part. Every now and then we bring a guest in, especially during the playoffs. So, you know, playoff time is our is our thing that we gear toward anyway, and and so at that point I would get a. Uh, any collection of guys who would come in, I'd, I'd have Kevin Locker in there with me. I'd I'd have Matty Gukas. Um, Charles came in um, back then, um, uh, and it was you know, and they'd come in for two or three nights, and you know, and, and be the analyst while you were doing the show. So um, it went that way for a while. Then we then we Cheryl Miller became the analyst in the studio with me on a nightly basis when we were on there. We'd have uh, Cheryl Miller or Reggie Theus or Dick Versace, the old Pacers coach. And um, and and then, you know, kind of fast forwarding, uh, Kenny Smith, when he was when he was in between 10-day contracts late in his career, came in for a few nights. And I remember telling Tim Kiley, the producer at that time, who was still with us too, and and saying, boy, this Kenny Smith gets it. He's really good. He's got a great way about him. And and I said, when he, you know, when he's retired, he needs to he needs to be one of us. And and that's uh, you know he as it turns out he he did start around you know ninety nine or somewhere, and he's been there for twenty years. So um, yeah, those early shows were a lot different than they look right now when you watch inside the NBA. Uh, and mainly because it was me by myself a lot. And, and so, uh, you know, when we added this other crew with Kenny and Charles and eventually Shaq, that's when the, the show really took off. I want to talk to you about that. But in, in between all this, you still had, I mean, sure, other loves and other opportunities. And, and my memory plays tricks on me. So help me if I get some of the dates wrong. Yeah. Kind of early to mid 90s, you got a chance to work with your dad doing some baseball, correct? Yes, indeed. That was. Um, and people still asking, well, you know, what's been the highlight of, of all these years at Turner? And I said, that's it. I said, working with my dad was the greatest. I mean, it was um, you know, when you're when you're that close to somebody, um, and and you know, when when I got married in '82, my dad was my best man, and and uh, you know, I gave him a pewter mug for his. You know, like best man gift and had it engraved that said my best, my best man, my best friend, and and so to be able to work with him, and to um, you know because he was he was legendary, and it was nerve wracking at first, Matt. To be totally honest, I mean I was scared to death. I just didn't want to embarrass him. I didn't want him to, you know, get up in the bottom of the sixth and not come back, you know, <laughs> it, you know it, and, and so, um, yeah, for parts of three or four seasons, I was able to do a game, you know, a game a week, you know, when my schedule permitted, when I wasn't doing other things. Cause at that same time, you know, we, 
we'd be doing goodwill games or and that kind of thing or golf and that kind of thing. And so, um, you know, so when the schedule allowed, we would do games on Sports South together. And and that I just I can't describe how special that was. Um, and part of that too was you know spring training. You know, just driving in the car with my dad to to go to Winter Haven and, and do a you know, a Braves, you know, Red Sox game or going to Kissimmee and doing the Braves and Astros. And, and uh, it was just, those are just really, really special times. Ernie, before we talk about what you were alluding to with TNT, let's talk about Ernie, the dad, Ernie, the husband, and, you know, anybody who's been around Atlanta and folks listening really around the country. I mean, you've, you've been, you know, pretty open with your kids, adopted children. I mean, it's a... It's quite the story of a, a, I mean, a beautiful family when it's all said and done. So take us through Ernie behind the scenes. Well, it was, um, you know, I'm. It was, it was one of these things where, you know, I got married in '82. It was funny too because um, I met Cheryl, my my wife to be, in Macon when I was anchoring the news down there, and she was the she was the uh, the teller at the drive-through window where I took my check every week and, and you remember how much I was making and making <laughs> to anchor the news was was 10k so so she knew what I was making um, but I there was something you know we would have these fun conversations every time I drove up there and 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 she was you know I'm four years older but she's a lot more mature than I am and she was in school at Mercer and also working two jobs to work her way through school, working at the bank and then working for a psychiatrist there um, because she had a psychology uh, was her major. And, and um, um, you know, it was, you know, you run into one of these things where um, now you're trying to make that next step look like Spartanburg and you're also dating her. And it's like, I can't stay in Macon. I'm going to go to Spartanburg. And we thought it was all over. And then I kind of, you know, once I got to Spartanburg, I would make these trips to Macon to see her. And then we decided we're going to get married. And I told my mom and dad, you know, we're in there in the kitchen. I said, we're getting married in 1982. We're getting married next year. And, and by then I'll have a job in Atlanta. And my dad's like, oh, Ernie, hold, hold on, hold on. <laughs> you realize how hard it is to do that and say you're going to make this jump. And you feel like it's a given. And I said, no, dad, I'm going to get it. I'm going to, I'm going to get a job in Atlanta. As it turns out, I did. We got married in 82. We had a boy and a girl, Eric and Maggie, uh, in '84 and '87, and then uh, and then we we went down the adoption road after we thought, you know, uh, you know, this is it. And, and you know, I wrote this book unscripted a couple of years ago, and 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 talked about, you know, breaking away from the script. You know, sometimes it seems like the perfect script. You know, you got this great wife, you got a great job, you got a boy and a girl. Why rock the boat? And it was really my you know, my wife's a world changer. And Cheryl had had learned of these uh, Romanian orphans and the situation they were in, and uh, and we talked and decided that we were going to adopt uh, a you know a child from Romania in 1991. And um, uh, you know the the story is kind of long and involved, but the bottom line was you know we wanted to give a kid a chance with some regular medical attention to, you know, have a, another chance at life, you know, at a, at a really full life. And, and, 
you know, she came home with Michael, who had all kinds of problems, and he was three years old. He'd never been outside, and um, and and it was just, um, you know, he comes home, and then they diagnose him with muscular dystrophy, and uh, and it's you know, it changes your entire life, and and changes the way day to day you're going to live because you're 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 now the parents of a of a boy who's got a, a fatal disease. And and he's you know a lot of these kids don't make it out of their teens when they have Duchenne muscular dystrophy like he has, um, but now he's 31. You know, he just celebrated his 31st birthday, and he's had all kinds of medical issues. He's the toughest guy I've ever seen, and um, and you know we wake up and look at a miracle every day, and and so um, you know we. We adopted an, another child two years after we got Michael, a little girl from Paraguay and Carmen, and she's you know she was in great health and and um, and Eric and Maggie uh, you know accepted these two adopted kids as as if they were you know it, 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 adoption really never entered the thing it was just here are my new brother and sister and uh, and so adoption's been very important to us and about. Eight years ago, we adopted two more girls out of foster care in Ohio. Um, so we have six kids, um, four of whom were adopted. Um, we, there are some special needs on on three of the three of the six, and and but that's that's what we that's why we were put on this earth. And so um, it has been a it has been a um, a wild ride at times. And I, I tell people, look. We, you know, we our place is um, our place is a circus, but at least we get in free. <laughs> That's amazing. I mean, that really is. Um, and again, I want to come back to Ernie in a minute, the the guy away from the TV. But you alluded to your time at Turner, and then you turn the page and you said, "This Kenny Smith fellow has got a future." When did you start to see once Kenny, and then take me through Charles? Because I, Ernie, I'll say this, and I've said it on my show, and I'll say it to you. I don't think there's ever been a studio show because I don't I don't find that stuff super entertaining all the time that I'm like I can't miss what these guys do cuz a it comes off obvious that you're enjoying what you do. You guys know your stuff, but it, it it's like that organic thing that you can never figure out. So when did you realize it was becoming what we all know now? Well, you know, it's the fact that we got Charles was uh, a surprise in itself because everybody thought he's going to go to NBC and work with Bob Costas and the, and, and the NBA crew that they've got there. And, um, and he had kind of said as much that he, that's the direction he was going to go. And then, you know, the folks at Turner made kind of uh, one more pitch to him and he came out of that last pitch. And it's, it just seems like they have a lot of fun in that, in that setting there and he decided that's what he wanted to be part of and, and my concern was when the novelty wears off is charles going to want to you know work a season or two and then say no i want to do something else and he's been there now for 20 years and um and i think the whole the whole stage was set really in one of our first shows when i'm out there getting ready for halftime and kenny and charles walked out and charles asked kenny he said what are you going to say about you know, whatever we're going to talk about. What are you going to say about the Bucks? And Kenny said, "You'll find out." And that's and that's how it's gone for twenty years. 
it's like there's no rehearsal. There's never a let's sit down and run through this. And you and you can see in some studio shows through the years that you can see the thing has been rehearsed three or four times. That this guy's going to talk, this guy's going to talk. He'll laugh about it. He'll say this, and he'll his comment will last 22 seconds, and we'll go to break. And with us, it was like, who knows what's going to happen? Who knows if this if this is even going to, you know, if we're going to get to what we want to talk about. Uh, because Charles might really go off on a tangent, and that's what's really been the beauty of the show. And and so um, that's what keeps it fresh every time you're out there. Um, that that it's not a cookie cutter kind of a kind of a show. You know, there were nights when the game was bad, and Charles wanted to talk about politics, and so we'd do that. You know, and and I think the, the reason the reason that worked is because Charles had built up. Um, you know, this reputation during his playing days as the most quotable guy in the NBA. And and so we were like, um, uh, is he going to stay that way? Yes, he is. He's going to say exactly what's on his mind. He doesn't care if you agree with it or disagree with it or think whatever. And and so we've been able to go in any direction on that show, and, and Charles has remained true to himself. He's an opinionated guy, and he's not going to back away. And I've seen a lot of guys who you, you, you see in interviews while they're playing, and you say, he might be really good on TV. And then the red light goes on, and it's, oh, I'm going to climb up. I'm not going to say that. Charles has never had that problem. He changed the landscape of what we do. And, you know, ever since he came on the scene, you know, you've seen other, other shows and other places all trying to have a Charles. But he had built up the equity over all those years that this was Charles Barker. This wasn't somebody trying to be Charles. This was Chuck. Well, then Shaq comes in, and Ernie, I've had people ask me, too, to try to describe how chemistry happens, and I don't know. I, mean, I don't know what in any walk of life how it happens other than it just does. So explain yeah, to, you don't know. Yeah, explain to me your chemistry with you three and then adding Shaq, and were you at all concerned about it? A uh, little bit. I mean, anytime you've had, you know, the three of us together um, from, say, 2000 up to 2012, uh, was the three of us, and then you have – you know, you know, Shaq had watched the show. Um, Shaq knew what it was all about, and Shaq wanted to be part of that because he is the world's biggest kid. Make no mistake. Uh, I don't care how old he gets; he will always be the world's biggest kid. And so, I think that was one of the things that we had to, you know, Shaq and I had a conversation in my office one day after he'd been working there for a couple of months. Um, and I said, "Look, I said we love to have a good time on the show. I said don't feel like." You have to come in saying, okay, let's do this because this will be funny or, or why don't you push that Christmas tree over on me and that'll be funny. I said, I said one of the things that Charles has done, uh, he always comes in with at least five things that he wants to unload before the night's through about the league. You know, he always has ideas that he wants to get out there or things that he wants to talk about. I said, do that too. You know, have a few things in your hip pocket that, you know, if we, if we get into this, area you want to weigh in on it i said because a lot of what's funny on the show that happens is really organic you know it just it just something funny happens somebody says something or misspeaks and then we ride them the rest of the night on it or you know and and it's no place to be if you got a thin skin because everybody takes fire you know you know kenny's kenny's gotten it because his knees knock when he runs to the board and you think his you know pants are gonna you know catch on fire if there's any more friction there and and, 
and Charles, you know, think about this. When we first started, and Charles was tipping the scales pretty, pretty heavy at that point after his playing career. And, and in that first year, he would get on a scale because he said he wanted to get down to his player. We, we would weigh him on the air. You think about how many future Hall of Famers would be game for something like that. There are too many guys out there who say, yeah, we can have some fun, but don't poke any fun at me because I'm a big name. Charles was never that way. He, he just thought that was the greatest thing on earth, that we would have such fun with it. And so uh, that's, that's what's made the show go, is that everybody is fair game, nobody gets their feelings hurt, and, and as, as, as Shaq got in there and we said, hey, you know, pay a little more attention to, you know, you know, breaking down some plays, you know, analyzing some players, and the fun will take care of itself. And that's what's happened because he's got this larger-than-life persona, and he is a funny dude. And, and so I think he's found the perfect balance of, of when to be, you know, crazy Shaq and when to be, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to break down why I think um, – uh, Blake Griffin needs to do this or this, you know. So that's, I think, I think his transformation to that has been really, really, really solid. Has uh, anything and Shaq and, and Charles have a great back and forth? Has anything once the red light has gone off continued? Um, I mean, there have been there have been a couple of times where it, it's never anything. It's never anything really bad, you know. But you know. Shaq will try to hide somewhere. And I, a couple of times, you know, Charles walked down the hall and Shaq grabbed him and threw him on a sofa. And I that saw kind that, of thing. right? But it's, yeah, but it's all, it's all fun. But and people have asked me, too. They said, boy, are those guys, you know, some nights they really get into it. And I said, yeah, they do. But it's not in a mean-spirited way. You know, Shaq might say something, you know, well, I got these four rigs and you never don't want anything. You know, all, all that stuff. But these guys love each other. And their moms were, were incredibly great friends and and they would see things happen and they say you, you behave you behave yourself and and they do so you know a lot of that is just makes for good tv when they go back and forth but but to the people out there who said oh i think those guys don't like each other or they're going to swing you know that ain't going to happen and 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 i certainly don't want it to happen because i'm sitting in between them yeah it's not a safe place to be Ernie, let's finish up with this um well, i guess we'll just you know, put put it out there. How how healthy are you right now? Because you you've had your own battles. Yeah, um, uh, you know, I had I had uh, non-Hodgkin's lymphoma back in uh, in uh, two thousand and three, and didn't have to have any treatment until two thousand and six. You know, and that wasn't you know that was a tough time, um, mainly because. Um, at one point in 2006, my, my lymph nodes really started swelling up, and I was on the air, and, you know, people were talking about it, and I had to go on the air, and I said, this is what's happening, and, and, and I've got this, and I'm going to have chemotherapy after the season, you know, and uh, and I had six cycles of that, and you know, went into remission in 2006, and have been there ever since with, um, in regard to that, um, and, and, and look, I'll be totally honest with you. Um, I'm eight weeks removed from having prostate cancer surgery. I had that on June 20th um, because, um, uh, you know, last last September, um, 
I went in for a routine physical, and that's and they discovered blood clots in my legs. Uh, so I had to miss the baseball playoffs last year because I couldn't fly. Uh, but in that same physical, uh, I had a high PSA number come back, and so we had to investigate that. And so really over the last year or so, there have been you know, lots of doctor visits and that kind of thing. And and uh, in February, just before the All-Star, the NBA All-Star weekend, um, you know, we had done all the tests and the biopsy and that kind of thing. And, and uh came back that I did have prostate cancer, and the decision was, okay, in June we'll uh, take the prostate out, and that's what we've done. I feel great. Uh, you know, I had to lay low for six weeks and not do any lifting or any of that, but, um, you know, it's it's very treatable and, and you know, was caught at a good time, and and so it's just one of those things, Matt, you know, that you, you go through. You know, you uh, we all have stuff, and, um, you know, it was um, – you know, what was funny is to be sitting in a doctor's office the day we got that word, and my wife and I had already been through, we had been through that already in 2003 when they told me I had cancer the first time, and so it was just, okay, that's what I've got. Now, what are we going to do about it? And and so the surgery was great, and I'm, and I'm feeling good, and I'm back at work, and uh, um, so there we are. You know, it's uh, it's just one of those uh, one of those speed bumps that uh, that we deal with. Well, it's one of the great attitudes, and Ernie, I, I'm not just saying this because you're on. I, I, when I asked folks, I said, who do you want on the podcast? And we've been very lucky to have Chipper and Dominique and all these names. It just coming, it kept coming back. People wanted to hear Ernie Johnson's story, and, and I can't thank you enough for sharing both the professional and the personal side you are. You and your family, I mean, it's, it's inspirational stuff, so thank you for spending time with us. No, Matt, it's my pleasure. I, re- I appreciate you having me on, and I'm and I would be remiss if I did not say that uh, um, my wife Cheryl and I were, are celebrating uh, 37 years of marriage now, and I, you know, I, I kicked my coverage big time, man. And and uh, and and I've got the, I've got, I'm in a great, I'm in a great spot. Uh, four grandkids, six great kids, beautiful wife, a job that I still love, and you know, somebody who's. Uh, hired me in 89 and, and has thought that uh, it's okay to have me stick around for 30 years. Well, you're great at what you do. I know you're going to be too humble to say it, but uh, trust me, from the outside, we recognize it. And, and Ernie, thank you again very much. It is my pleasure, Matt. Thank you so much. Thanks, everybody, so much for taking the time to listen to this week's edition of Welcome to Atlanta. Thanks to our producer, Matt Lear, for his assistance with the program. He's the glue that keeps the operation running. We'll talk to you next week. Welcome to Madlana. Welcome to Atlanta where the players play and we ride on them things like every day. Big beats hit the streets, see gangsters roaming and parties don't stop till 8 in the morning. Welcome to Atlanta where the players play and we ride on them things like every day. Big beats hit streets, see gangsters roaming. Uh-huh. Hey everybody, Buck Blue here, and as a recent customer of Jim Ellis Automotive and a longtime friend of the Vice President, Stacey Ellis, man, I know Jim Ellis Automotive Group takes pride in being a family-owned and operated business. 
I saw it firsthand. When Stacy's granddad, Jim Ellis, founded the company back in 71, his goal was to treat every customer like family by offering a car buying experience that was both easy and fully transparent. And it worked. 50 years later, Stacy's dad, Jimmy Ellis, grew the organization to become Georgia's largest family-owned and operated automotive group. And today, third-generation family members like Stacy, along with more than 1,700 dedicated team members, are working hard to uphold the values Jim Ellis Automotive was founded on. And that's why Jim Ellis has been around for over 50 years. Enjoy the advantages of buying your next vehicle from a family-owned and operated dealership. Visit JimEllis.com or stop by any of their 20 dealerships located throughout Metro Atlanta. Jim Ellis Automotive, where you can always expect the best. The winningest team in baseball also has the most saves, and people who save the most money are winners. So start earning saves by investing in worthy bonds for only $10 each. These bonds earn a fixed 7% APY, and there's no fees, penalties, or minimum balance required, and they can be redeemed whenever you like. You can even round up everyday purchases to buy additional bonds. Go to worthybonds.com backslash save. That's worthybonds.com backslash save and save and win. Camp Margaritaville RV Resort, where you can just breathe in and breathe out (sighs) or move. There's biking, boating, arcade games, hiking, nearby golfing, or fly through the new Fins Up Water Park. Thrills, chills, twists, and turns. This could be you. Camp Margaritaville at Lanier Islands. An easy one-hour drive from Atlanta. Book your stay today at CampMargaritavilleLanierIslands.com. 